0: Willow is a 1988 American fantasy film directed by Ron Howard with a story by George Lucas, uh, produced by George Lucas, starring Warwick Davis and Val Kilmer. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know what your relationship is to this film. I was not allowed to watch this because... probably wasn't either. uh, It was very Star Wars adjacent, and I knew that when I was growing up, and I really wanted to see it. All my cousins and friends were seeing it, but unlike Star Wars, which I could somehow sneak by on a uh science fiction exception that just blatant blatant mysticism and magic and all the things would frighten a a person like my mother. So I wasn't allowed to see it. I don't have any deep affectionist material. I know that one of the first things I did when I moved out was to rent this movie and watch it, and I remember being pretty disappointed thinking that this is (laughs) not star i i thought this would be like lord of the rings meets star wars and it was
1: well i think the key here
0: is that you said when you moved
1: out which to me says you were probably aged out Uh, yeah but
0: but still this was this was the uh the ewok adventures meets lord of the rings at best um and so but i thought like okay this will be a fun one to end the uh, super serious film fest. I, I actually kind of thought it was a little bit of a bummer, a little bit of a drag. Oh yeah. I didn't have, yeah, this, I, I found it very hard to engage in this material and wasn't, it wasn't super bad. It was definitely wasn't super good. Uh, there's not a whole lot to like just savage or criticize because the film firmly has its heart in the right place at all times. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just, uh, yeah, was wasn't for me. what do you think, Jim? Uh, I agree
1: it's not for me. Uh, this feels more like a kid's movie than any of the ones you've mentioned before, aside mm-hmm. from maybe Ewok Adventure. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's probably an apt comparison. But, yeah, this, this movie has a lot of Lucasian elements. Right. Uh, all of his sort of big ideas that you think of from Star Wars, a lot of his character tropes, uh, those all spill over from Star Wars into this. And I I heard in an interview, or maybe it was on the special features of the, the DVD Blu-ray version of this. Um you, you
0: got you got the Blu-ray special features? I did not, but I oh. found them. Okay, okay. Uh, They're
1: they're available out there. Although I will say the effects one I couldn't find. I found mm. sort of the little featurette they did about the making of. Uh but he said basically this idea had been kicking around in his head for about fifteen years before he finally got it made. Uh it goes all the way back to the, even before Return of the Jedi, because you know, obviously Warwick Davis was working on Return of the Jedi as as Wicket uh, and I think they had discussed possibly doing this film together uh, after Return of the Jedi. And it took a while to get it done. But you can see, like, okay, that era of of filmmaking in George Lucas's life is sort of permeated by these types of ideas. And it even comes through in things like the soundtrack, uh, things like certain elements of the direction. I can see where Lucas is, and it's telling that he is on set a lot in that featurette. Mm -hmm. Even though Ron Howard is the director and Ron Howard claims at the beginning of that, oh, you know... I
0: never got that impression
1: of watching the featurette. And so there's a lot of
0: Lucas in this mm. film. Well, that's true of like, you know, I think that it's as, as much Spielberg is a big part of uh, Indiana Jones. Like, I think that the same deal. Lucas is on the set and kind of co-directing that a lot, uh, even though Lucas isn't a credit director for any of the other Star Wars. Like, it's obvious that he's on set every day. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, no, I... Um, I, I definitely feel what you're putting down here. Um, should we go with like a description of this film before we get into spoilers, just so people that might not be familiar with the film? Yeah. Uh, so Willow is named after uh, the character, the main character played by Warwick Davis, who is uh, from a tribe of dwarves called the Nerwin, and they get embroiled in a civil war. Uh, from the human culture, which is I, I believe their name is the Dishkini. Dishkini? Uh Daikini. Yeah. Daikini. Uh and they're being ruled over by a literal wicked witch queen uh, there is a prophecy that involves her downfall at the hands of uh, this infant that's going to be born. Is very Christ kind of metaphor. Mm-hmm. Uh, very uh, I guess it's just a messianic metaphor because they get the Moses mess- messiah myth in there mostly. Mm-hmm. Um, the queen is aware of this prophecy, so she has all the pragn- pregnant women of the realm uh, rounded up so she can kill the baby instantly. But some of the midwives conspire to smuggle the baby into... Uh, uh, some dirty laundry float it downstream where it's uh, the uh, it's discovered by Willow, and then the rest of the movie is the adventure he has getting this prophesied baby back to her people mm-hmm. safe and sound so she can not oppose the the wicked queen. Yeah. Uh, like I said, lots of lots of uh George Lucas going back to the mono myth well and like lifting parts from the Bible most uh, most um immediately from like the exodus because you see like the this baby that's sitting down this like reed basket and it's found by some other people This survive the total genocidal destruction um and i like i said it's like this movie like uh there's a interview where um george lucas essentially said a lot of my films are about the little guy Mm mm-hmm going against the system and why try to bury the lead just just get a little guy to be the actual hero Yeah, that's
1: the most literal interpretation of that
0: yeah yeah and just it's it's it works on a lot of the same level like the the fellowship of the ring does because you've got this you know person who's very small in stature uh, and um he just kind of wants a normal life, and he's thrust into the limelight. I guess it's slightly weakened by the fact that he has, like, magical powers, okay. where Frodo truly was an everyman. Like, he didn't have anything special. That's mm-hmm. one of the reasons you could trust him with the ring, right? Um But, yeah, it, it, it works fine. It's just really slow. The comedy is very broad, mm-hmm. and... uh there's a couple of things I will say that like the third act engaged me in a way I wasn't uh, prepared for because I thought like the trap they laid for the enemy forces was reasonably clever, uh-huh. you know. Like I've uh, they 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 hid their forces and they lured them out and then they surprised them and forced their way through the gate. That was kind of cool. Uh, there there
1: are some really good effects in this movie that are pioneered that we'll talk about a little later. But yeah, the the, the thing that I really wanted to get to because. When you when you see this movie and you know that it's made in 1988, which uh-huh. is not a very like politically correct time, sure. you go, okay, there are a lot of little people in this. How is that going to age? And I think it aged mostly pretty well. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they felt like they were not for the most part making fun of these people uh they weren't the the butt of jokes i I think it aged pretty well
0: yeah because i think that this was i think george lucas made this from a pretty pure place of heart yeah he had worked with a lot of little people in productions where they've been wearing latex masks and stuff and you also you see them they're cast and like when you need a like the the captain of the fucking lollipop brigade and Mm -hmm in munchkin land or whatever and he's like you know what let's just have these like this is just a this is a village full of people and Mm -hmm. their attribute is they're just small but otherwise they have asshole politicians Uh and they have valiant warriors and they have moms and dads and craftsmen and like it 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 kind of gave them a identity of their own that they they weren't you know they weren't really exceptional anyway, except for their stature, and that's not really remarked. And mm-hmm. uh, the you know, the humans are dismissive of them and uses I, I what I guess is the racist term for the ones, the peck. Yeah, like, but that serves not
1: as a commentary on these little people, but no. more as the the characters who were calling them that. Right, like the Oafish, well.
0: you know, on uh, you know, thoughtless nature of the people. Right, uh, throwing that slur around, so you you make a film that tries to be respectful of a people and it turns up it holds up better than films where you're just using them as props or or objects to tell your story. Absolutely. Um it's also clear that George Lucas is trying to definitely hammer a lot of Star Wars shapes into this oh, like yeah. you know uh, wi- uh Willow himself is a farm boy, mm-hmm. you know, he's 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 plowing his field with his full-scale pigs, which I thought was pretty cute. Um and, you know, he, he has this quest that's been given to him by this village elder that very, the way he talks and kind of his whimsical nature reminds you a lot of Yoda, mm-hmm. and then he comes across like an anti-hero that's very much like Han Solo. There's a guy in a skull mask, very much like Darth Vader, a uh, creepy person in flowing robes, very much like the Emperor. Um, yep. The problem is, is there's, I don't know, like this Han Solo kind of sucks because he doesn't have a fundamental seriousness about him. Like it's way Han Solo is introduced as a badass and a pirate and a scoundrel. And you kind of take mm-hmm. him seriously because he murders a dude within seconds of seeing him. Sure. You're two thirds of the way through the movie before Mad Mardigan does anything that's even slightly heroic or cool.
1: Yeah. Let's talk about him for a while. Cause I, he makes this claim.
0: I am the greatest swordsman that ever lived.
1: I I'm looking at this movie waiting for him to show it. And I guess by the end I was left a little underwhelmed. I feel like, almost the the movie lets him down a little bit mm. lets the character down because every time they show him doing something i think should be cool it's always followed by either a joke or or worse yet it's like staged so cheesily that you can't believe he's a badass you think the bad guys are just dumbasses
0: i know there was better ways to choreograph some of these fights yeah. I don't know whether maybe Val Kilmer didn't take it serious because like, he's famously kind of difficult on set. Um, I don't know what he was. I didn't, read any, I didn't read any kind of lore about him one way or another, but like, there's a lot of just very lazy sword fighting going on, and mm-hmm. you kind of needed him to do something really cool right away. In fact, the first time I watched this, I'm like, I don't understand why Willow's trusting this guy at all. Let me out of here. I'll take care of the baby. still feels ridiculous every time i see it
1: it does and i'm trying to go back and sort of retcon a reason in my head because the the town elder does tell them like get on the road give this to the first daikini you see and be done with this quest that kind of thing so i think they're justified in just handing him off although you're right, Mad Mardigan comes across as such a fuck-up and yes. such a scoundrel such a in the beginning that there's no way you shouldn't trust this baby. And Willow right. is so reluctant that I don't, I don't know why rubbing the
0: gunk off his teeth and putting on a good face for Willow convinces him. Did you get any, like, Old West motifs in here, too? Because I thought the whole angle of the land thievery felt like the intro to almost every Wild West thing I've ever seen where a cattle baron okay. is. Like, what what is the hero's impetus to to do something crazy like this well he's going to lose his livelihood like if he doesn't yeah he's in a place uh where he's forced to undergo some kind of change because if he stays the way he is he's going to lose his livelihood he's going to lose his job he's going to lose his his land he might lose his family And, and and i think
1: importantly too um and they don't make this super clear in the film but the lucas in the or maybe it's warwick in the featurette says that you kind of get the impression too that he he's
0: a failure at both it's so yeah and the show is so kind of pro stage magic the fact that Uh like the actual magic the magic uh, petrifying acorns fail willow in his final confrontation but good old-fashioned misdirection and sleight of hand sees (laughs) him through like yeah, did David. Like did the uh, I don't know. I feel, I feel like five year old David Blaine sees this movie and it changes his life forever. <laughs> Probably. You know, this is how this you is change the one. This is how you change the world. This is how you can free people with with uh, fucking stage magic.
1: Yeah, Up but close the,
0: street magic.
1: The the themes of this movie are very much tied to that, right? It's it's something along the lines of uh, what the the High Aldwin tells him. You lack faith in yourself more than anyone in the village. You have the potential to be a great sorcerer. Now, when you're out there, listen to your own hearts. These will protect you. Acorns? They're magic. They arguably, in this film, want to create a scenario where magic is is trusting in yourself right believing your your intuition is correct mm-hmm. um and i think they they sort of undercut that too they undermine it by actually making these acorns magical i think it would be much more effective and i was surprised when the one fell on the bridge and it turned the thing to stone cuz i was assuming all along okay well Magic this is beans, this is to teach him a lesson yeah when he finally gets to where he needs to use these acorns he'll use them nothing will happen and all he'll have is his wits left and they go that direction but they also make the acorns magical and i don't think it was as effective as it could have been
0: yeah i agree with that um that if you're going to have the, the you know it's like nothing about a power it's just like his intrinsic you know belief in himself and and confidence then you don't need the the the, the magic acorns to be subverted I was actually so one of the things I thought worked surprising well is the baby as a central character it's pretty rough you know that like you just have a baby and it's a MacGuffin it's a living MacGuffin mm-hmm. I thought that they did a really good job with, like, just really patiently getting certain expressions from the baby where it gets a performance. Like, it looks skeptical, and it looks Mm -hmm. like, oh, it has, like, these, oh, brother, I can't believe this thing's going and it looks happy and sad. They got a lot of good performance out of the goddamn baby, which is super key, because if that didn't work, then... It's it's really ridiculous. Yeah, especially when you know, they're talking about how oh the baby chose Willow and all this. You've gotta right. have a good baby. The baby's gotta have a good personality and I think it did. I was surprised to find in my research that there was like tons of the obviously there was a primary baby that got mm-hmm. shot. Um I actually kinda thought it's like, oh, wouldn't it be interesting if this is Bryce Dallas H- Howard? Because the ages kinda lined up and but no, it's it's actually just some hmm. baby. Um, but you were saying that they went through a ton of babies in this role? Oh, I don't know
1: how many babies they went through, but they had like a full house kind of thing going on hmm. with Michelle Tanner where... They're played by the single baby was played by two twins, right? And the uh, production and went went,
0: long, went over a long time, and I it, the, I heard that the babies aged out of the role, and they had to cast another set, and then they still huh. weren't done with some of the reshoots, and I think like one of the like one of the production hands kids. <laughs> Oh, boy. Did some, like, uh, baby
1: double work. Um, I I wouldn't actually be surprised if this was some kind of weird morphing effect that they were using on this baby mm, to get those expressions. Because this is the movie that sort of pioneered
0: ILM's morphing technology. It's so weird because it happens a full, like, four or five years before it debuted the great effect. I guess so it's like, this is the first of this type of uh, special effect. Then they did a little bit in the Abyss. And then, of course, like, it really strutted its stuff in in Terminator 2. Mm Mm-hmm. It is eerie because you see a bunch of whole, like, you know, matte compositing and, gre- and, and, you know, green screen work and stop motion. And then in the middle of this, you've got the, tra- the Terminator 2 liquid metal effect. Uh-huh. And it's kind of, like, as jarring as if you're watching, like, Jason Argonauts and you would see, like, the Terminator <laughs> 2 walking around in the midst of all the skeletons. Uh-huh. It's like a special effect from an, another age that's in this. It's it's weird. I, yeah. I thought but but good because I think this is you know a high watermark for practical effects and they threw in that digital effect of the the sorceress getting turned back into herself and it was it was good it was really good
1: yeah that's the thing that you know has always been enchanting about Lucas's films I think is the way that he's able to blend uh technology and storytelling Mm -hmm. and I, I sometimes it hits and sometimes it it hits a little less. Right. Uh there's a lot of stuff in like Phantom Menace that you look at and doesn't hold up quite as well as it could have uh if he maybe waited a few more years, but he's always been pushing the technology forward through ILM and through LucasArts. Uh and I or Lucasfilm rather. And and I have a lot of respect for that because a lot of the things that you see in films today were technologies that are pioneered by ILM, you know, created wholesale by these sure. guys and it's say what you want about the storytelling and some of the, the latest movies but they have forever consistently been pushing technology forward in filmmaking
0: did some of because like I don't know I used to I used to totally buy in everything Lucas said at face value and then like the prequels happened and <laughs> some of his grandi- more grandiose uh, hero's tale kind of uh Jungian Campbellian shit maybe not as, as, as smart as I, I used to think he was uh, but he you talk about the special effects, and he mentioned in the interview that he had to wait until nineteen in nineteen eighty eight because special effects had to progress to a certain point to tell a story that seems like bullshit to me i think i think I think Star Wars had to progress to the point where he was done with that and, yeah and yeah you know then this was kind of the next project he was developing he 'd gotten i think uh by this point um wasn 't the first two Indiana Jones out in the pipeline like because I, Sounds right. Yeah, the only special effects advance it seems like is that morphing technology, and I just don't think the scene of him rapidly transforming this uh, sorceress into seven different animals—that surely can't be the thing that George Lucas is like. Ah, we don't have this morphing technology. So, <laughs> in fact, it can't be because it, like the visual effects guy in the interview I read said that they had they had like three other plans before this guy wrote this morphing software. So, huh. i I was gonna say there's other ways to do this
1: effect right it involves more cuts right and it involves a lot of prosthetics and you see it sort of in the pig stuff right Mm. they did a lot of prosthetics for those pigs and those transformations
0: were not all morphing tech no 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 there's a lot of uh, american werewolf in london type of just uh yeah there's a guy with a latex snout and then we're gonna go wide angle and oh he's got hooves and we're gonna go close up and oh Uh he's got ears now too (laughs) hide those transformations with the cuts which, which were
1: definitely like some of the coolest things uh, that sure. pig scene is yeah. affecting and uh, i like the the symmetry of like <laughs> this pig trick that willow tries to pull in his magic show at the beginning and it not quite working and the baby at the end where he pulls the trick to to fool the sorceress long enough to for her to disappear into smoke and the turning of the soldiers into pigs and the reversion of that i I like all that stuff. It it feels like it connects in a good way. Mm-hmm. Uh but I don't think you needed that tech to tell that story. Nah.
0: No. After I've seen this movie uh cuz I don't think I've seen this movie since Lord of the Rings came out, I feel like that big that wizard fight between Saruman and Gandalf was completely bitten from the fight between Squirrel Lady and Evil <laughs> Queen because they're fighting in this like poorly lit like studio of Blackstone and they're coming at each other with staffs and they're uh like that part where she's like bouncing the old lady off the walls and spinning her around like uh-huh. that's that's totally Christopher Lee <laughs> and uh, <laughs> fucking the other guy I've I've spaced on Gandalf's Ian McKellen. name Ian McKellen it's, the, the, it's totally them going out in the in, in Saruman's Tower of Warthang. isn't that isn't that the, the, no, the, the, I don't name, know the name of the, of the tower world? So I I, I thought that it's like there's clearly that this is weirdly influential in a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, I thought there was a lot of I thought there was a lot of like um, the armor from game from Lord of the Rings in this movie. Like there's uh, this this army that Mad Mardigan fights with this Eric guy looked a Mm. lot like the Rohirrim's armor in the Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, all that kind of stuff um i felt like there was a lot of peter jackson this this movie being influential to his look and feel of some particular things i thought the design of queen Bavmorda was rich really interesting like late in the movie she reveals that she's got this like mumra type of design like she's a mummy yeah. underneath all there and she turns starts turning an old woman i thought it's like oh man we're gonna go full on mum raw that'd be fucking cool i wasn't sure if that was just simply what she chose to wear, or if it served some
1: purpose if she had had some right. hideous scarring somehow. Right. Um. There, there's a lot of cool art design stuff. Like, I really like Mad Mardigan's uh, sword-gauntlet combo. Mm. Little weapon he's using. I like uh, Sorsha's sword I thought was pretty cool. It's, like, serrated on one side and right. uh, very sharp on the other. Uh, yeah, there's... And I don't know, I... I wasn't too enamored with the Skull Face, you know,
0: He-Man type right. villain there. General Kale. Yeah, General Kale <laughs> wasn't doing it for me. Did you? I, so I guess that that's a reference to some infamously tough critic that George Lucas had a bone to pick with. I read that. And yeah. also the two-headed goofy dragon was called an Eber, Ebersisk uh-huh. to represent Ebert and Siskel. Um, okay. Is, is that because i can't imagine that george lucas has had much criticism like
1: negative feedback at that point so certainly it's not
0: like a because i know roger ebert wasn't as in uh, in love with star wars in the beginning as he eventually grew to appreciate it okay Uh, so i don't know but uh I, to me, that's always weird. It's like, why take shots at movie critics? in your, I mean, these are pretty inoffensive. Like I didn't, I would never have gotten these no. if someone didn't explain it to me on uh, the internet. But still, it's like, huh, interesting. So, did you in any of your research see like some of the evidence that people had pointed to the earlier drafts where a lot of the things I didn't like about the film, a lot of things I do not like about the film is like it seemed like they went for a lot of broad comedy and action set pieces when I. Did not know enough about the character situation. Honestly, other than Willow, who I kind of like just because he's a very likable guy, Warwick Davis is mm-hmm. very likable and he's an appealing, engaging actor. Like, I didn't understand why I cared about any of this plot. Like, this woman is an evil queen just because the movie tells me so and she's got that wardrobe. Uh, I feel like, and I guess, yeah, they they made the point of that she had enslaved all the pregnant women and this crazy thing. But, like, yeah. you know, like, a General Kale, like, he's supposed to be this big, dangerous guy, but I don't really see him doing anything villainous. Um, Mad Mardigan's supposed to be this badass, but it's like nothing quite lands. And I read that in the original there's a lot more fleshing out to especially Mad Mardigan and the Sorsha characters. Hmm. That this Mad Mardigan was supposed to be a knight of the kingdom of Galadorn, which General Kale mentions having destroyed uh, to Queen Bavmorda in the beginning. So you already see that there's bad blood between these two factions. Uh, The character Eric was painted out to be his only real friend, um, but his recklessness got him in trouble. And then he got in a love affair with a woman that caused him to desert the army, which is why there's this bad blood between obvious affection, but bad blood between them. Um, yeah, it, all of that stuff
1: is still in the film, right? But it's right. not quite in the film. It's, it's it's more like these are things that are mentioned. Galadorn is mentioned. Right. Uh, Eric's, Eric's part of that clan, that kingdom, whatever it was. I had to actually go to the Willow Wiki right. on, on phantom.net or whatever the hell mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, look up what Galadorn
0: was because it's mentioned, but it's never explained well, and, and the real the real tragedy is, like, because I thought the whole romance with Sorsha just came out of fucking nowhere, but there are scenes that were cut where this uh, this kingdom of Tyr Asleen, which is where this uh, god baby is from, mm-hmm. uh, the Sorsha was actually the daughter of the emperor of that kingdom, which is supposed to be, like, you know, a, a tribe of, of good, virtuous people, um, th- and the fact that her father is not dead, but he's imprisoned in, like, the ice by bad Morda, and he gets freed later on and he actually has like there's a cut scene where he makes a plea for his like explains her what's happened and from entombment of ice he makes a plea for her to turn good and to save them all that makes a lot of her like what appears like sudden change of heart like oh this cute boy is kind of into me yeah yeah but only because he's in a love potion like it's th- th- so much of that I had to build some headcanon around. Like, yeah. oh, well, I could see
1: you know this girl who's under the thumb of her evil queen mother right. has not had much opportunity for love, right. and like the f- the first uh, good-looking man who approaches her has wooed her because she's inexperienced. And I'm building this elaborate castle of backstory in my head when it sounds like in one of the seven
0: drafts of this script of which there were. And and this was cut for jackassery involving brownies, essentially, probably. And there's some cool stuff. Like, I, as you mentioned, I quite liked the brownies doing the little putian thing to Willow. Some of that stuff was kind of fun, but holy cow, I hated all the brownie shit. Why are are
1: tiny beings always cast as such mischievous, annoying characters? Why are they such
0: dumbasses? Like, can they be... Can we treat them with the seriousness that we're treating the Merwins? Right. and they're putting on bad French accents? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I looked at you know Army of Darkness and how annoying the small ashes were in that movie. S- these guys take that's that at the most restrained the the little ashes are that's where <laughs> their performances begin, yeah, absolutely, and they're with you the entire film practically,
1: yeah. so. Yeah, there's no escaping the brownies. I think the brownies are the worst part of this movie easily.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, did you know that they've never made a sequel to this, although Ron Howard, as late as 2018, has said that there is like a, a Willow sequel in the works somewhere? Willow and the Crystal Skull. Which I could see. Like, yeah, sure, why not? Why not The Willow Awakens? He's mm-hmm. 30 years older, and his kids are all grown up, and they've got lightsabers now, too. I don't know. So did you know that even though there hasn't been a a, a, a sequel... Movie yet that there is a whole series of books and comic books that like f- completely fill in the backstory of this. There's like three I, I official canon novels and yeah. uh
1: It's clear to me that Lucas was looking to recreate the success of Star Wars through Willow, right? Like I'm gonna do, I'm gonna do it again, right? And
0: I it approached nothing near that. It, it feels like an Ewok adventure, just Caravan of Courage kind of thing. It does. The whole production kind of feels that way. and I, I, I want to talk a little bit about more of those aspects, but it's funny because i'm not sure why it didn't work because i thought that this movie was just a giant financial flop it turns out it actually was profitable it did make money it just wasn't as it wasn't as big of a hit as star wars yeah uh, i remember being like pretty popular in my peer group there is a well-regarded like nest game there was a mm-hmm. lot of merchandise that seemed like people were having fun with i'm actually it, it seemed like a, a a case of hollywood restraint that they didn't just force a sequel force a franchise on us yeah no that's surprising what do we think of james james horner's soundtrack i think it's remarkably
1: john williams-esque at points yeah and it fits the the flavor the vibe that george lucas has in all his films
0: yeah i kind of felt like man this feels very derivative like where it's not just absolutely ripping off uh some of uh, uh, uh the star wars soundtrack and I felt like they really did aggressively ripped off some of the, like, romance-type Absolutely, music. Absolutely, And there did. was also some of, like, kind of like the kind of battle transition music. But I guess he also ripped off some classical pieces. And they, had, mm-hmm. but they kept on warring. and I also read a piece of trivia, that the score for this movie, for whatever reason, was, was one of the most frequently licensed for uh, trailer work. Hmm. so like this this uh, willow score gets used for a lot of high fantasy and adventure type stuff in the 80s and 90s and like so part of me is like well is this derivative because it is or do i think it's derivative because i've seen it in 75 different fucking trailers throughout the 80s and 90s like this is probably cut into robin hood prince of thieves and this is cut into uh i don't know i've already i've just exhausted all of my 80s and (laughs) 90s high adventure fantasy films uh but I don't know. It's 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 tough. It's tough. I think there's a, it's a little bit of both. Yeah,
1: probably. Uh, I will say, though, that I enjoyed the score. I thought it was very good. I, I wanted to ask you about uh, Sorsha and Mad Mardigan at okay. the end of this. I think because they make a big deal about, oh, we got to get this baby back to the king and queen. She'll become the princess and eventually the queen. She'll take down Bad Uh I think at the end of this movie... It's shown to be that Mardigan and or Mad Mardigan and uh, Sorcia are the king and queen. They were kind of the king and queen all along, and they mm. come together and raise this baby in Tear Yeah,
0: that makes sense because like it seems like at some draft she was the daughter of the emperor. So right. then, as him as a like, so she would be the rightful heir, and then he probably demonstrated his, his worth or maybe it turns out he's a prince of the land too. Like yeah. Like yeah. I, I have no problem making that work. Sure.
1: Okay. That's where I ended up on it.
0: So because apparently, apparently there was like some kind of uh, reunion with her and her father at the end where maybe he would give his blessing for this kind of arrangement that, that they cut that out too. It feels kind of long and bloated for as as small of a story as it as it is. And I man, I really wish they cut a whole bunch of stuff. Like I thought honestly everything about the brownies was just stupid. It's a side quest to go to a wizard woman that tells her to go to just another wizard woman. It's Oh, it's, that's the thing. This, this high old one in the town yeah. uh,
1: is made out to be a charlatan. Uh, he, he, at every turn, gets everything wrong, right? The bones tell me nothing. Uh-huh. Uh, he throws the bird in the air and says, Follow the bird. The bird goes back to the that's village. He says, true. Fuck the bird, follow the river. Go in the direction the bird is flying. It's going back to the village
0: the bird follow the
1: river. he's shown to be a charlatan. and he sends willow on a quest that is essentially like dump this baby on the first daikini right. you see and be done with it and come right. back and it turns out that that is completely the wrong way to go he actually needs to you know get a quest from sher lindria mm-hmm. Lindria, i think is mm-hmm. her name the the crazy fairy right. light lady right uh and and apparently actually he gets the quest from the baby
0: herself uh-huh. because Alora chooses him I see. To me, this this all needs to be condensed. Like the yeah. the village elder, the high elder uh, Alda, Alden or whatever the hell his name mm-hmm. was. He should tell you go fetch this woman who's been turned into some kind of tree squirrel. Yeah, here's a magic wand you need on your quest. Uh, he and go. Uh, and and go to the crossroads because you need to get this person back to the i, I don't know it's it seems like there's a way to collapse this and, and not have mad Mardigan strapped up in some fucking gibbet just have him like because have him be like the defeated army that like hey we just tried to go against the queen it's useless but hey, there's this new hope mm. of this baby that might fulfill the prophecy like you got a 90 minute movie that's a hell of a lot better just doesn't have any fucking brownies then you can then choose if you want <laughs> To punch it up and give the adult something, you have a prologue where you, under, you explain who Sorsha is and who fucking Mad Mardigan is mm-hmm. so that we actually care about these characters for anything other than just like props. Yeah. And, but it's just in this no man's land where it's too long and bloated for kids to really enjoy and it's too shallow and uncomplicated for adults to get into. Um, I think you're right. And it's just, it's just, it's again, it's not a bad movie, but it's certainly not a great movie. And it, I think it's on my where. Where is this uh, as far as you're uh, in the Super Serious Film Fest? We've seen six films. I oh, feel like boy. this is my least favorite as this far is as in terms below. of enjoyment to watch and like you know thinking about it after the fact.
1: It's definitely below Rain of Fire. Yeah, uh, I enjoyed Rain of Fire a lot more. I thought it took itself below more seriously. Conan.
0: It's de- oh, absolutely below Conan
1: uh Army of Darkness, yeah, below Army of Darkness because it had less <laughs> less brownies in Army of Darkness. Right, uh Dragonheart.
0: I had more fun with Dragonheart. It's definitely below Excalibur. Yeah, Excalibur is legitimately, I think, in for its time, and it needs some edits too. But it's it's a, or it needed either a big edit and and concentrated one of the fucking stories, or it needed to be blown out into like two movies. Yeah, I agree.
1: I will say, I think if, if we did Dragonheart again without, uh, Dennis Quaid, mm-hmm. I think this movie would be worse than Dragonheart, but you think it's with Dennis Quaid in it, yeah, I just, like Dennis Quaid does nothing for me. Like mm-hmm. I feel a negative void space in my heart when you say the words Dennis Quaid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I mean, Warwick Davis is extremely likable. Yeah. I think Val Kilmer is extremely likable in this as... You know, basically Han Solo. It, yeah, Dennis Quaid does nothing for me. So he's, this is better
0: than Dragon Art. Yeah, Warwick Davis is like 17 years old, and he's playing like 35 and not doing yeah. a terrible job of it.
1: No, I was shocked to see how young he was in this movie, which puts him at like 12 or 13 in Star yeah. Wars Return of the Jedi.
0: And the kids that got playing Warwick's kids are like some of the fucking cutest. Oh, And yeah. some of the, like, these devil dogs are just dogs wearing costumes and it's so funny because like this little girl's just sobbing piteously which makes the action but every once in a while i'll get a glimpse of like the dog's paws and i just think like <laughs> there's like a very happy dog that's like having the time of his life being like it's right. like, like a good boy uh pretending to be a very bad boy and mm-hmm. having the time of its life like i just i don't know it's something tickled about me about that i thought
1: the dogs were cool uh i know that in some scenes like in the close-ups they're animatronics oh really they can snarl and they can Mm -hmm. yeah like raise their their they show their teeth and raise their eyebrows and all kinds of stuff yeah Uh, but uh, but this movie pulls no punches in the beginning i will say because by the time the intro credits are over Mm -hmm. uh they've they've already talked about like basically genociding an entire generation of babies right uh A mother has been murdered, and an old woman has been mauled to death by rat devil dogs. Yeah, just right
0: in the background. Like, it's, (laughs) it's... it's, holy shit, it's vicious. Absolutely. Vicious mauling. And I thought the rest of the movie was going to,
1: you know, take a similar tone, but it doesn't.